Welcome to the Focus Church Teachings Podcast. We hope this brings a lot of encouragement to you, but we also want you to know that we believe discipleship doesn't occur here, but occurs in small groups where people share their gifts with each other in many-to-many discipleship. If you want to know more about that, stick around after the teaching. Imagine a young boy who's born to Jewish parents outside of Jerusalem in a small town outside of Jerusalem during the time of the Roman occupation. So somewhere between 0 to 10 AD, this young boy is born into the middle of a time when when the Jews, like most of the world, are actually occupied and involuntary members of the Roman Empire. But as a Jewish boy, he grows up in a family and, and is immersed in this firm grasp of history, long, long history that the Jews have of being an occupation or being conquered and being taken from their homeland and then returned, the, the, the persecution that has gone for years and years and years. And so he has this sense, this understanding of who he is as part of this history. He sees himself as part of that history. Furthermore, he learns something amazing about the Jews that in all of the occupations and in all of the persecution, somehow they've managed to continue to hold on to their identity as a people, even though they are scattered frequently across the whole world. He still has this grasp that we are, we are a nation, we are a people, and they're able to hold this identity because they are not first and foremost ge- geographically centered as a nation. Geography is important to them, of course, as it is to all of us, but their primary identity comes from being people of God. In fact, their very sort of first identifying, defining moment as a nation is when God rescues them from bondage to Egypt. He rescues them and teaches them how to be a free peoples and how to be a nation of God. And so it's this idea of being people of God, the nation of God, kind of the kingdom of God that really drives the the Jewish identity. And this boy grows up with that understanding. And as he's in the middle of this Roman oppression, he understands who he is. And he furthermore knows the hope of the Jews. He knows that throughout all these years, the other thing that's held their identity together is this conviction, this understanding that God has appointed a chosen one, an anointed one, a hero who will come. The, the Hebrew word for this is Messiah. It literally just means anointed one. The Greek word is Christ. And so they're waiting for this Messiah or they're waiting for this Christ who will come and who will rescue them from the oppression and free them and make them into a great, eternally perpetual Jewish nation, people of God. And so this young boy grows up looking and waiting for that Messiah as the rest of the people of his time do, because this young boy is not the Messiah. This is not a young boy who's born outside of Jerusalem in Bethlehem. This is a young boy who's born outside of Jerusalem in Bethsaida. And all his life as he grows, he learns about this, and he and he begins to get a sense that he is born in the right time. And he begins to see himself as having a destiny of being part of this new kingdom. He begins to believe the Messiah will come in his lifetime, rescue them from the Roman oppression, and his destiny is to be part of that. And so he keeps his eyes open, and he's constantly looking for who this Messiah will be. And he watches false Messiah after false Messiah proclaim themselves to be the Messiah. But they don't do things that the Messiah would do, and they don't say things that the Messiah would say. And most of all, they fail in ways that the Messiah would never fail. So he keeps his eyes out and he keeps looking and he grows in his confidence and his determination that he will, in fact, be part of this new kingdom. And one day his brother comes to him, his brother Andrew, because of course this is Peter that we're talking about. And one day his brother Andrew comes to him and says, he's here, 
we've seen him. It's the hero. It's the Christ. It's the Messiah. And Peter says, how do you know? Are you sure? And Andrew says, John the Baptist identified him. And you should hear the way he talks. And so Peter does go and he is impressed. And for the next three years, he follows this man around. And as he watches and listens, he becomes increasingly confident and certain that this is indeed the Messiah they've been waiting thousands and thousands of years for. He sees this Messiah do things the Messiah would do. He sees the blind being made to see and the lame being made to walk, the deaf being made to hear. He even watches this man raise people from the dead, including Peter's own mother-in-law. And so he becomes very convinced and he comes to that declaration that we saw a few weeks ago when he says, of course, I know who you are. You're the Messiah. And it kind of all comes to a peak, this, this confidence that he has, that he is born in this right moment and he is destined to be at the side of this Messiah. And he keeps reminding Jesus of that. I will be with you. I am here for the duration. And it comes to a peak at this day when, when Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a colt. Again, another picture that was given to them prophetically of what the Messiah would do. He rides into Jerusalem and the crowds go wild. They go crazy. They are worshiping him. They are adoring him. They are praising him. They are calling him the Messiah. And as the crowds go wild and they're so excited, he sees that the, the Romans are getting scared and the, the priests are feeling threatened. And this doesn't discourage Peter. This encourages him because, again, it just shows the showdown is coming. The big moment is here. And now he sees that they're scared and he, and he, and he knows the time has come and he sees the crowds and he sees the throngs and he's just sure Jesus is ready to pull the trigger. It's going to happen. This is the moment. The showdown has come. Jesus is going to take his place and he's bringing Peter with him because Peter's been faithful. And the timing, the timing is perfect because it's Passover week. This is the Passover. This is the moment when the Jews remember that great historical moment. They became a nation. Passover is the celebration of the day that God brought them out of Egypt through the Exodus. And this becomes the defining moment for who they are as a free people of God. It was the, it was the generation that learned what it means to be a free people and to be a people of God. It's when the covenant is introduced. And so here we are, of course, it makes sense that the Messiah would come and take his throne during Passover. And so we know that after this grand triumphal entry and Peter's riding high, the other apostles are probably right there with him and they decide to have dinner together. Now it's not entirely clear if this is a Passover dinner or just a Sabbath dinner. Could be either. It depends on when you believe the timing is and that is not completely clear to us. But it's during this week of Passover and they are together for dinner and they're all gathered together in one room and I just can imagine Peter is thinking, this is the moment, this is our war room. This is when Jesus tells us how it works. This is when Jesus is going to explain to us that it's time for him to take his place as the rightful king. This is the moment. But doggone it, Jesus is in a weird mood. And he keeps bringing down the vibe. And he keeps saying weird things. It's as if he's conceding defeat right when they're at the top. And right in the middle of this dinner, when they should be planning their victory, Jesus is talking of his death. And then he says something to all his apostles, his most faithful. He says to them, you know, you're all going to leave me. Not one of you is going to stand by me. 
And Peter looks around and he thinks, are you crazy? Why would you say that? This is all I have wanted my entire life. I was born for this, Jesus. I was created for this, Jesus. This is my hope. This is my desire. This is success. Everybody else I can't speak for, but I'm not going anywhere. And Jesus looks at Peter and I think with great compassion says to him, before the rooster crows, before this night is over, before the sun rises, you will deny me not only once, but three times. Jesus was in a weird mood. And it doesn't get better. They leave from there and they go to the garden and Jesus asks to pray because he thinks something bad is coming and Peter just wants Jesus to know, buddy, we're in the right place at the right time. It's going to be okay. Why do you do this? And then while they're there, the Romans come to arrest him. But Peter is not afraid. He's not scared. He's not a coward. This is what he's here for. In fact, he figures this is the moment for which he has been born. And he grabs a sword and he cuts off the ear of the centurion that wants to take Jesus. But Jesus does something very strange. Before even anybody notices what Peter has done, Jesus reaches out and heals the ear of the centurion, undoes what Peter has done, pushes Peter back and says, Peter, this is not who we are. And Peter is confused because he thought this was exactly who we were. And he watches in shock and dismay as Jesus walks like a lamb to the slaughter with no fight at all. But we can win, Peter's thinking. We almost had it. We were so close. And Peter watches as the apostles scatter, but not he and John. No, not yet. Thanks to John's influence with people in high places, they're able to actually go to where the trials are being held, the illegal, illegal by Roman standards and Jewish standards, trial for Jesus that are taking place, the non-trial trials. But they're able to go and they're able to listen and they're able to stand outside. And as they're there comes the first denial of Peter. And I think this first denial is not born of cowardice. I think it's almost born of convenience. Peter is standing there and he wants to listen. He's trying to understand. He's trying to get an idea of what's going on. Why is Jesus doing this? Surely it's all going to change. And somebody says to him, wait, you're one of them, aren't you? And, and it seems like Peter says, I don't have time to deal with this. No, I'm not. But you'll see later. <laughs> and the second denial comes a little bit later, but now Peter's had a chance to realize what's happening and what's happening is all wrong. It's not what's supposed to be. He now knows that Jesus isn't even defending himself before the Sanhedrin. He's not even fighting for his life. Peter's hope begins to just rush out of him. And I think that second denial is not born of cowardice, it's born of despair. I think they say, you're one of them, and Peter is confused, and he says, I'm not one of this. This is not what I signed up for, a, a Messiah who quits who gives it up at the end. And the third denial comes very quickly after, and it even the text is clear. This is a denial of anger. Somebody pushes him and says, no, look, I know I've seen you with Jesus. And he says, stop it, I don't know him. And I think Peter didn't think he did know him anymore. And I think Peter's angry with Jesus. I think he cannot begin to comprehend what's happening. 
And in his anger, he thinks Jesus abandoned us. Why should I stand by him? And of course, after he denies him for that third time, the the rooster crows and he remembers what Jesus said. And he realizes that everything he's sworn, he didn't do, but worse than that, his whole world is now without shape. His whole life, his destiny is gone. His purpose is nothing. He doesn't know who he'll be tomorrow. He doesn't think there's hope for tomorrow. His hope has always been in a Messiah and more recently, specifically on this Messiah. And this Messiah has given up without a fight. There is no tomorrow. There's no future for Peter. He doesn't know who to move, how to move to the next step. There is no next step. And that's why he weeps. And now the fear comes. Fear that he doesn't even know what's supposed to happen tomorrow. Fear that maybe he's been wrong about everything, which as we talked about for Peter, that's an uncomfortable place to be. I want you to think about Peter at that moment. I want you to put yourself in his shoes. Don't worry, we won't stay there. It's not a fun place to be. But I know you know those feelings. I know that all of us have had those moments in our lives where our hope just drains away. Where everything we were passionate about, everything we were joyful about, everything that brought us joy has proved to be nothing. Our purpose is gone. Our family's gone. Our belonging is gone. Our future is gone. And we may all face it at different degrees, but all of us have faced it. And for Peter, it was everything. And that's where he is. There's a reason I wanted to talk about this tonight. We're going to do something a little bit different over the next few weeks. We're actually going to take a pause on our series of the 12. Now, I realize we've covered 11 of the 12, so it's an interesting time to take a pause. The last of the 12 is Judas. And we're going to take a pause, and we'll come back to Judas during Passion Week. So as we get closer to Easter, that just seems like a good time. Otherwise, Judas is just a bummer. So we'll just (laughs) wait until then. But there's actually another reason. It's because as I've been praying about us, your groups, our church, us as people, as I've been praying about who we are and where we are and where God is taking us and what's coming up next, I just felt really strongly that we should take advantage of an opportunity that our culture gives us to lean into something, something good, but something we don't always lean into. Something that might be hard to lean into for some of us, even though it's good. When I ask you to put yourself in Peter's shoes, I know you guys can do that. I've seen you do that. And in our groups, one of the things I'm really proud about our groups is that we're good at mourning with those who mourn. That is good. That is a value of focus. We will continue to encourage that and do that. We're really good at mourning with those who mourn. We understand. We we want our groups to be safe places, and they should continue to be that without interruption. That there is no benefit that we can see in pretending to be okay if you're not okay. We'd rather just know. And even if we can't help, we'll enter in with you. That's all still true. But I felt like God was saying, as I've been praying about us, that there's that other part of that verse, which is rejoice with those who rejoice. And I think for whatever reason, we're a lot more practiced at mourning than we are at rejoicing. And it's an interesting time because 
the culture around us doesn't always encourage the things the Bible does. In fact, often it doesn't, right? The, the culture around us encourages disunity and disharmony and anger and hate, while God encourages love and unity and harmony. And so we're fighting against the culture when we do that. The culture around us encourages a me-first attitude, a really selfish approach to life, and God doesn't encourage that. He encourages a Christ-centered life and a life of love for others. So the culture doesn't really go with us on that. But what's interesting is once a year, our culture leans into celebration. As a whole, as a nation, we lean into this idea. And if you think about it, it really starts now. We hit this period where it's okay to be grateful. We don't talk about gratitude and thanksgiving any other time of the year as if it's really only worth it once a year. <laughs> and we talk about hope, and we talk about joy, and we talk about celebration, and we talk about goodwill among men, and we talk about just embracing who we are as a community and giving each other gifts and loving each other. And, and, and I'm not saying that Christmas is a good, joyful time for everybody, but I'm saying culturally it encourages that. And so I think we want to take advantage of that this year and lean into that season of celebration. So for the next two months, really starting today and going through the second Sunday in January, because if you think about it, New Year's Day is just another part of this moment. We look at Thanksgiving and we look at celebration and we look at restoration and renewal as we get into the new year. It's all this package deal that happens all within this two-month period. And as Focus Church, we're going to lean into that. So why did I share this story about Peter's worst moment? <laughs> how does that fit with a season of celebration and rejoicing? Here's how it fits. I know that this season is not easy for everybody. I know that this season is not naturally celebratory for everybody, and for some people it's even harder than other times of the year. I'm not discounting that. And we'll still be there to mourn with you as you mourn, but we want to help you lean into celebration because there's something that Jesus says to the apostles that I want us to think about, and I want to challenge you to embrace this next couple months. Jesus says to the apostles, there is an enemy. And he says that enemy delights in stealing, killing, and destroying. I like the overkill, literally, of kill and destroy. The enemy doesn't just want to make you dead. He wants to make you gone. And I think that's true not only of who we are, but of everything that's valuable to God. See, there's nothing glorious. There's nothing, nothing at all. And this is something in our culture which is very problematic that we should just dispense with right out of the gate. There's nothing glorious about Satan's rebellion. There's nothing even slightly noble about Satan's rebellion. Satan's rebellion isn't just a rebellion against authority. It's a rebellion against everything that God is, all the goodness of who he is. And so Satan wants to kill and steal and destroy everything good. And Jesus says, that's what the enemy does. He says, but I've come to give you life. And elsewhere he says, I have come to give you joy. And not just joy, but joy filled to the top. And here's what occurs to me. It's good to mourn with those who mourn. It's good to mourn. There's a time for mourning. It's good to recognize when we're not doing well. And it's okay. And I'm not condemning anybody who struggles during this season, but I think it's also good to remember 
that just because there is an enemy who wants to steal your joy doesn't mean you have to hand it over without a fight. <laughs> just because there is an enemy who wants to kill your hope doesn't mean you have to stand by and let that happen. This season, we want to join you in the fight to hold on to your joy and your hope. So that's the season we're going to enter into. So let's, what I want to do is we're going to finish this, this story about Peter. We're going, to, we're going to come to what's called the restoration of Peter here. And as I read it, what I want to do is I want to identify the joy robbers. What does the enemy do to steal our joy? And identify the way in Jesus restores them. We'll see them in Peter, and I hope that we will see them in ourselves as well. Because the good news is that there's good news. <laughs> I have notes I might have to look at. I know this is unusual. I'm not using my digital things. number of reasons for that. None of them matter. But it does mean I have to look a little bit because my handwriting is terrible. And I can't tell at a glance what I've written here. So give me a moment to make sure I'm on the right track. So let's go back to Peter. Let's pick up our story with Peter. Before, we're going to be in John chapter 21. And before I read from John chapter 21 tonight, I want to just, we need to get there. Because there's an important moment that we left out, and that's the resurrection. Obviously, that's a pivotal moment. You could say the pivotal moment. <laughs> and obviously, that returns to Peter some of his joy. But in a weird sort of way, it doesn't seem to return all of it. You would think that's all you need. And I do want to talk for a moment about the restoration and the robbing of joy that occurs at that moment. So let's go back. Let's remember where Peter is. For Peter, he is convinced that they have just lost. That Jesus has lost. And this is the first joy robbing that I want you to understand. One way the enemy robs your joy is he convinces you that he's won. He convinces you that he is going to win. He convinces you that everything you hoped for is gone, that there's no possible way back from this. And it is so important we treat the story of Peter with sincerity and realistically understand that there's not a single person in here who would feel any better about things than Peter. I mean, how many people really think it makes sense for Peter to think the Messiah has just died without a fight, but I bet it'll be okay in a couple days? I mean, it makes perfect sense. And the reason this is so important is because this is how every defeat looks in your life. People say to you, it'll be okay. But to you, you say, how can that possibly be so? This is not just a step backwards. This is not a misstep. This is defeat. This is the end. But when you say that, you are in agreement with the enemy. And his desire is not to lead you to truth. His desire is to rob and steal and kill and destroy. I added another extra unnecessary statement there. To rob and kill and destroy. See, the joy robber is that Satan says to you, this is the end. When things are bleak, you've lost. But let's be honest. Never in your life have things ever been, they may have felt this way, but never in your life have things actually ever been as bleak as they were the moment that it appeared that God had lost the universe. Never 
Has anything in your life been as devastating as the thought that God himself had died and the enemy had won forever? And I only say that to point out that if God can reverse that in two days, what can he not do with you? See, this is the deal. The joy robber is that Satan says, ha ha, you lost, I won. And Jesus restores your joy very simply by actually winning. Jesus doesn't have to tell you, he just does. He wins, he always wins. He wins every time. He never loses, he never fails. He wins, 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 winning. All he does is win. And you know what's funny? That almost doesn't mean anything to us because there are so many people who are always telling us that they never lose. But unlike Donald Trump and DJ Khalid and Charlie Sheen, in Jesus' case, it's actually true. (laughs) He actually wins every time. When Satan says to you, it's over, you lost. It is not naivete. It is not merely wishful thinking and optimism. It is not just you trying to make the best of things to actually say, guess what? Jesus can't lose. Jesus will win. He will win with you and he will win for you every time. Now I understand that at this moment when Peter's sitting there, that looks impossible. And I want you to acknowledge that. Because if it looked impossible then, it looks impossible now. But both are just the enemy telling you he's going to win, but Jesus will win. When Satan says he wins, that's fake news. When Jesus says he wins, that's the good news. That's literally what we celebrate in Christianity is the gospel, which is good news. And the good news is that Jesus wins every time, all the time, always, forever and ever. Amen. It's hard to remember. But that is the way that we combat the robbing of our joy is to remember that Jesus wins. So that helps, right? Peter, certainly he's in joy. He has some joy at the resurrection. But I think there's indication that the joy he felt when he thought Jesus was going to do what he thought Jesus was going to do and bring the kingdom back earlier, that hasn't come back. Because the problem is, yes, Jesus won. But you realize that by Jesus winning it only reveals how more foolish Peter was, right? Now Peter's like, oh my gosh, I did give up and it wasn't the end. It's not even like he can justify that he gave up after it was over. Now he has to acknowledge to himself, I failed and Jesus was winning. I gave up when Jesus was still fighting. I just didn't understand the fight. And so Peter's joy is now tainted because before... He was really confident in his place in all this. And now he feels aimless and he feels like he doesn't belong. And he knows that he failed. And there's a degree of self-loathing that goes into all this as well. And let's be honest, we all have had moments, even the most confident and secure of us have had our times of self-loathing. I really want to tell you something tonight. I, I really want to tell you, when you reach your 50s and you start going into your 50s, that sense of being a failure it goes away. Everything flows. There's no issues. You never make a mistake. I really want to tell you that tonight. (laughs) I want to tell you that because I want it to be true. (laughs) I want Charlie to tell me that when you get, you know, when does this happen? Is it your 60s? You know, when, when do we get to the place 
where we've got it figured out and we stop messing up. But I can't tell you that, and you can't tell me that because it's not true. It's interesting, and I should have known this would happen. God has a way of doing this. When I want to teach something, God just reminds me of the difficulties. And I should have known when I was going to teach on this that God was going to remind me what it felt like to fail. Look, nothing tragic, nothing major happened, but the last couple days I have just felt woefully inadequate. I felt like I messed up. Things that, that, that should be so easy for me. Little things like... I've gotten frustrated when I didn't want to get frustrated. And I've said things without thinking when I didn't want to say things without thinking. I would love to never have to apologize again a day in my life. Right? And yet, I have a feeling that's just not the way it's going to work. It's no fun to feel like a failure. Because every time we feel like a failure, here's what I think what the joy robber is. It's not just saying to us, you failed. It's not just saying to us, you messed up again. But it's saying to us somewhere deep down that you now have messed up so much, you are now no longer enough for God. God is a nice guy, but you've gone too far. <laughs> His love for you has worn thin you know, he's not going to retract his promise. You'll still get to go to heaven, but he's not going to be quite as excited about seeing you as he is Paul. I mean, that's, that's the real joy robber. That sense that I am not enough anymore. That God's love, I don't deserve it. Not just that I'm unloved, but I shouldn't be loved. That God shouldn't be there. And I think that's where Peter is. And no matter how joyful he is about the kingdom coming, his place in it is now not what he thought it was next to Jesus' side. His place in it is something much less. And that's where he is. And I think, by the way, that's why when the story begins, he's gone back to fishing. Because if his purpose is gone, what else, what else does he know to do? <laughs> Jesus comes back. He meets with them all a while. And then he and Peter go for a walk. I don't know if they go for a walk. That's how it looks in my head. I realize it doesn't say that here. Just for now, bear with me for the sake of a setting. They have their moment. It says, when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? It's an interesting question. And I'm not clear if he means, do you love me more than you love these? I actually think what he means is, do you love me more than these people love me? Because isn't that really the claim that Peter made last time he made a claim? <laughs> they may all mess up, but not me. Simon, son of John, do you love me better than these, more than these? Yes, Lord, he said to him, you know that I love you. Feed my lambs, he told him. And a second time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Shepherd my sheep, he told him. He asked him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved that he had asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And this is weird because we're supposed to be reading about restoration, but it kind of feels like Jesus is just browbeating Peter. 
right? I mean, here's Peter. He's feeling like a failure. He knows he failed to love Jesus more than others. He knows he fails, failed to love Jesus at all. And here comes Jesus along as if he wants to make the point over and over. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And Peter's like, I keep telling you I love you. And I think his grief is not just that Jesus keeps asking, but as Jesus keeps asking, Peter is forced to realize the answer is kind of no. But there's a couple things that are going on. Jesus isn't browbeating him. He is restoring Peter. And I want you to understand there's a couple things may not be immediately apparent to you. The first one you may have caught already, and that's that why does Jesus ask him three times? Because Peter denied him three times. And I think part of what Jesus is doing, it's not for Jesus. Jesus does not, he's not so insecure. He needs to hear from Peter that Peter loves him over and over. Jesus is asking him three times because Peter needs to hear his own lips say the balance to what he said before. Peter needs to know he can say again, I love you when he said, I don't know him. So he asks him three times in order to give him a chance to sort of undo it for him, not for Jesus. But there's something else that happens here too, which I often don't go into the Greek because our translations are so good. And I hate to give anybody the impression that you can't read these in the plain text if you don't know Greek. But there is something that happens here that frankly is impossible to know without a bare minimal knowledge of Greek, and I want to share it with you. The English language is woefully inadequate when it comes to the word love. We use love in all sorts of ways, meaning all sorts of different things, right? You can love McDonald's french fries, and you can love your wife, and I hope that's not the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> ben says, pretty much, pretty close. <laughs> but we use love lots of different ways. And, but in the Greek, there's actually multiple words for this word that's translated love. Now, this gets very complicated because Jesus is probably speaking to Peter in Aramaic, and yet we're reading it in Greek, so we don't really know what the words are that Jesus actually spoke but I think we get an idea from his first statement when he says, do you love me more than these? There's a modifier to this. And John, as he records the discussion, he does something very interesting with the Greek, which is probably, well, absolutely must be intentional. And that's that when Jesus asks the question of Peter, he says, Simon, son of John, do you agape me? Now, agape is the word for love in the Greek, which means love me unconditionally and perfectly and divinely which would make sense with more than these, right? They love me as mere mortals, but you, do you love me like a God? Do you love me with a perfect love? And what's fascinating is if you think about it, essentially that is what Peter said before his failure. He said to Jesus, I will never fail to love you. But in answer to Jesus now, Peter has grown in humility and he answers to Jesus not with agape, he does not say to Jesus, you know, I agape you. He says, you know, I phileo. Phileo is the word which means basically love as much as any human can. It's, we get the word Philadelphia, which is the, brother, the city of brotherly love. So it's not eros, which is romantic love, and it's not an acquaintance love, but it's a friendship love. It's a brotherly love. It's a deep affection. And Peter says, not, yes, I agape you, but more humbly he says, I love you as much as any human can. In which case, Jesus then says, 
feed my sheep. And then he says to Peter, Peter, Simon, son of John. Interesting, he doesn't call him Peter here, by the way, too, but we'll leave that for another day. Simon, son of John, he says again, do you agape me? And Peter once again says, Lord, you know I phileo you. And then Jesus says, Peter, do you phileo me? Jesus changes it. Jesus doesn't ask him, do you love me with a perfect love? But he asks him, do you love me as much as any human can? And Peter is grieved because he just said that. But I think he's grieved for more than that. I think he's grieved because even though it's true and it's real and there's humility in the recognition, it is still a painful recognition to Peter that Jesus had to lower his expectations of Peter. But here's what Peter's wrong about that and what Peter soon learns. Jesus didn't lower his expectations because Jesus never expected that Peter would be able to agape him. Jesus knew who Peter was. Jesus knew that Peter was, in fact, human. (laughs) And that his ability to love would be human. It's Peter who needed to learn, who needed to readjust his expectations. And it is a hard thing to our ego to recognize we are not as good as we hoped. But the other thing that's happening here is as Peter looks at his failure to be to Jesus what he always thought he would be, as he looks at his failure to provide that place for Jesus he thought he was supposed to provide, the faithful, committed, really perfectly loving supporter, as he realizes his failure in that, what Jesus is saying to him, by coming to him, by saying, do you phileo me? And then notice when Peter says, yes, you already know that, I've already told you that, Jesus doesn't say, you're right, I guess you shouldn't feed my sheep then. He gives him the exact same command that he gave him when he said he agaped him. And what he's saying to Peter is, you're not any less useful to me. Nothing has changed except your own understanding of your abilities. And I think in a very strong way, by stepping down, although it's grievous to Peter at this moment, it is also restoring to Peter because it is Jesus meeting Peter where he is. It's as if Jesus is saying to him, I was never, this whole thing, this gospel, what you've missed all along, Peter, it's always been about me coming to you. I called you. I walked with you. I left heaven for you. I came to you. It's never been about you coming to me, Peter. So when you failed to come to me, nothing changed on my end. I still come to you. And I still love you with an agape love. I don't only love you because you're able to give me something. I love you because I do. The good news is that Jesus comes to us. The joy robber here is that we have to come up to some sort of place. We have to accomplish some sort of thing. We have to grow to some sort of position before Jesus can truly love us as he should. And the restoration is that Jesus says to us, hey, I'm here now. I've come to you. But there's another thing that happens in here too, which goes hand in hand. It happens at the exact same time in the exact same conversation. And that's that Peter, along with feeling 
unloved, feels out of place. He feels aimless and without purpose. He doesn't know what he can do. He can't, if he's not, if, it, if he doesn't earn God's love by doing good things, then what is he supposed to do? And so it's interesting to me that Jesus first says, I will meet you where you are. I'm not waiting for you to do anything. You don't have to learn how to love me right. You don't have to love me at all. I love you anyway. I'm here. That's done. Nothing else changes that. But now that we've settled that, Peter, I do have a challenge for you. It doesn't change my love for you, but I do have a purpose for you. I do have a place for you. See, I think the other joy robber that happens to us is we feel like we have nothing. We have no purpose, we have no meaning, we have no aim, we have no place to go. We put our lives in everything. I think like Peter, many of us as we get older discover that what we thought life was about was empty and left us with nothing. And that's exactly when God comes to us and says, I love you with nothing, but I want to give you something. I want to give you a purpose and a challenge and a place. And so he says to Peter, Peter, guess what? Even though you failed your own self-imposed test of loving me enough, I still want you to take care of those guys. Go give them what I've given you. We've had this conversation and I've stood here and I've restored you, but you know what? There are disciples all around you who are scared and afraid and feeling like failures because every one of them left me that night. And I need you, Peter. I need you to go show them what I showed you. Go love them more than they deserve to be loved. Go love them without requiring they love you back. But do it knowing that I've done it first. And then go feed my sheep. Go take care of my lambs. Go be a shepherd. So the joy robber is that we have no purpose and we have no place and we have no, nothing to do And the joy restoration is that Jesus says, I love you without you doing anything, but I also love giving you stuff to do. (laughs) There's a purpose here. And I think there's an order here that's important. First, you recognize God's love for you. Then you love God back as you are able where you are right now, which will be woefully inadequate. Can we just stipulate that? And only then do you think about reaching out and loving the sheep from that position of honesty and humility and security. The other thing that happens here, I think another way you could say this joy robber is that what's going on with Peter here that robs her, it's joy is self-absorption. It is very, very easy for us to get inside our own heads. And even when we're thinking about good things, like how can I grow and how can I be better and how can I do more and how can I... There's so many times that self-absorption robs us of all our joy. And Jesus' answer to that is stop looking inside yourself, look up and look out and a lot less of looking in. Now, I know some of you are reflective and analytical and very self-aware and I am as well. That's who I am. That's what I do. But I have learned that too much introspection definitely robs my joy. And I've also learned that the best way to understand who I truly am is not to look inward first but to look to my creator first and then look in love at those around me second and then look inward. Is that always possible? No. You're going to fail to do that? Yes. Will God still love you? Of course. If your answer to that was no, you really haven't been paying attention. 
But I do think in this season of celebration that we're coming into, we're also going to have opportunities for you to serve. Because I think part of helping you embrace uh, celebration will be also helping you look outside yourself this season. Right? Jesus says, it is more blessed to give than to receive. By the way, there's an interesting thing about that quote. It's not in the Gospels anywhere, and yet we know Jesus said it. Do you know why? Because Paul says Jesus said it, which is weird. It must mean that Jesus said it to Paul. So somewhere on that road. <laughs> but he said it's more blessed to give than to receive. And that word blessed, let's take out the spiritual sort of feeling of it because that just becomes like it's more right to give than to receive. That's not what it means. Blessed means happy. Jesus says you'll be happier if you give than if you receive. That's hard for us to really believe. And that isn't just stuff. That isn't just money. That's also understanding and love and affirmation. Is that, is that, is that so weird? That is weird for us to believe that we will be happier if we give affirmation and love and service to others than if we're always receiving it. Now, that doesn't say it's bad to receive. <laughs> if it was bad to receive, then we're doing everybody a disservice by giving. So that's not what it says. <laughs> But it reminds us that we are wired such that we actually are happier when we give than when we receive. Now, if you're giving a lot and you're not happy, you're not giving. You're doing something rote that looks like giving, but you're not giving from that place that God calls us to, to see his love for us first, love him with what we can, and then give. So because of that, we're, doing the next, we're going to do a lot of events over the next two months on Sunday nights that we would love you guys to be part of. And, and one of those coming up next is Operation Christmas Child. Now, we've had a schedule snafu with that. And we're actually still working out the final details of that. It might be next Sunday night. It might be Friday night. We're talking with a lot of people to see what will work. I apologize for that. One of these things that happens, back to my failure and adequacy. But nonetheless, that's where we are. <laughs> so we're trying to work that out. We'll let you know. But that's just an example of an opportunity to serve other people, to look outside yourself, be blessed by being able to give to those who have never received in some cases. But then there's something else that happens in this story, and let's wrap up with this last sort of joy robber and restoration. It kind of makes me chuckle here. After they have this conversation, Jesus says again, feed my sheep. Then it says, Jesus said, truly I tell you, when you were younger, you would tie your belt and walk wherever you wanted. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will tie you and carry you where you don't want to go. And he said this to indicate by what kind of death Peter would glorify God. This is a very strange thing to say to Peter right after you've restored him. And it's even stranger because the words are weird. But John explains to us what it means. Jesus is telling Peter, you are going to die as a martyr for me. Now, that might sound discouraging until you remember who Peter is. What is the one thing in his life he wanted to do? Be a martyr for Jesus. What is the one big failure in his life? He failed to be a martyr for Jesus. I know this sounds weird, but I honestly think that's what Jesus is telling him. Look, I love you as you are. You failed to do that. I love you. I don't care, but I want to tell you something, Peter. As you walk with me, I'm going to get you to that place that you feel you were created to be. That's an encouragement to Peter. I think he hears that and he's like, oh, yes. <laughs> I get another chance and God tells me. And notice, it's not, a, it's, not a, it's not a command. It's not a, Peter, you better get it right this next time. It's not a test. It's a done deal. It's this is what's going to happen. Which is why the next phrase to us would be really weird, but to Peter is encouraging. After saying you're going to die, he then says to Peter, so come with me. <laughs> so follow me. A lot of us, honestly, would be like, I don't know if I want to 
do that. <laughs> but Peter wants to. Jesus is like, you failed to follow me. It's all good. Follow me. And it's going to work out the way that it should. You will be the person I created you to be. So it's really further affirmation that Jesus is with him. So that's really good. But then, this is one of those moments in scripture where I laugh. I chuckle every time I read this. Now, I, my mind's a little bit weird about things, but to me, this seems very, very funny. And this is what happens. So the, right after this, Jesus says, follow me. It says, so Peter turned around and saw the disciple Jesus loved following them and the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper, that's John, and asked, Lord, who is, and asked, Lord, who is the one that's going to betray you? And Peter, when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about him? Now, this is, this is fascinating because what's happened here is Peter has just been restored and given everything he wants. Jesus has said, you can be that place in the kingdom you wanted to be at my side, and you will be, and you'll be a teacher, and you'll be a shepherd, and you will die in a glorious way. Again, to Peter, this is a glorious way. You will die with glory, and you will die for me, and you will be with me, and we will walk together, and everything you want, it is going to come to pass. Just come with me. That's all I ask. And at this moment when Peter has everything he wants, he's suddenly not looking at Jesus. He's distracted by John. And he's distracted by John, who is doing the very thing that Jesus just asked Peter to do, but John's doing it without being asked. This whole situation to me is, is kind of funny. Because Peter, instead of just doing what Jesus wanted and recognizing all that matters is I get to walk with Jesus, he's suddenly looking at John and saying, well, wait a minute. And let's be clear when he says, what about him? What is he really asking? Does he have to die too? Now, let me ask you a question. Does that make any difference to Peter, really? Will Peter's end of his life be any different based on what John's end of life is? Of course not. Why does it matter? This is totally irrelevant. But for some reason at that moment, it feels like it. And I think we do this all the time. We want to compare our stories with other people's stories. And we get all sorts of joy-robbing qualities from that. Sometimes I look at other people's lives and their lives are harder than mine and I feel guilty. And I say, why should my life be better? And my joy is robbed because I can't be grateful for what I have because I'm too busy feeling guilty about what they don't have. And Jesus is going to say to me what he says to Peter. Other times I look at other people's lives and their life is great. And I get envious. And I say, how come they get what I don't get? And that robs me of joy. So whether it's guilt or it's envy, those are joy robbers. That's the enemy who's taking from you your place, your position, by causing you to worry about other people's places and position. And so Peter says that about John. What about him? And Jesus says, if I want him to remain until I come, Jesus answered, what is that for you? As for you, follow me. He repeats it. If I want John to just live forever, what does it matter to you? Now, he didn't say John would live forever. He just said, what, what does it matter? It goes on, John goes on to explain, because I think he's been uh, hampered by these rumors all his life. People are like, you're going to live forever. He's like, and he says, so this rumor spread to the brothers and sisters that this disciple would not die, yet Jesus did not tell them that he would not die. But if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? So the joy robber here is comparison with others. I cannot think, i just be super honest. Comparison is something we all do. We do it all the time. It's so easy to do. And I can't think of one positive benefit for it at all, ever. Now, I may be wrong. And if you find a loophole, fine. But don't let the loophole override what I'm telling you. In my life, I have never encountered a moment where comparing my story with other people's stories is any benefit to me at 
all. It only makes me guilty or envious. It does not make me feel joy. And the bottom line at this moment, the real restoration is that Jesus has just said to Peter, walk with me in the new kingdom. Just be with me. See, Jesus wants to write Peter's story with him. He wants to walk Peter's journey with him. And it will be unique because it will be Peter and Jesus. And it will be only his. And instead of embracing the uniqueness of this story, Peter says, well, maybe John's story is better. And Jesus says, stop. (laughs) You're missing the point. Any story with me, says Jesus, any story which is me with you is the story you want to be in. It doesn't mean there won't be hard times. It doesn't mean that Peter wasn't in desperate pain when he watched his wife die and then died himself. But he did learn that lesson, that any story with Jesus is the right story to be in. And that's the bottom line for us. Because as we go through this season of celebration the next two months, the reason we're doing it around Christmas, aside from the fact that our culture will let us, you can actually go sing out loud songs about worshiping Jesus and people won't think you're weird because it happens to be a Christmas carol. I love that. I love caroling around Christmas because you go to people's houses and you sing the gospel at them and they say, thank you so much. And these are people who would not answer the door if you handed them a tract which said the exact same words. (laughs) But for us, the other reason we're doing this now is because there's no better time than the time when we choose to be reminded, when we choose to remember the lengths to which God went to be with us. As we explore the incarnation and the mind-blowing idea that God chose to come to us to leave the comfort of the eternal, eternally glorious and pleasurable palace to come here to be with you, to be with me. Because that's the bottom line of our joy. I suspect I have some wrap-up thoughts here. Really quick, let me look because I've forgotten what they are. Maybe that was it. Oh, that was mostly it. Except I do want to say this. Paul says this. This is the challenge. This is what I want you to take from this for the next two months. Are you going to have moments where you're sad? I suspect so. Because in any two-month period, I suspect we're all sad at some point. (laughs) Or Or scared, or angry, or something that robs us of joy. That's fine. Will it be harder for some of you? Probably. Because I know it is, and you know it is. So my challenge is, and don't be sad. That's just dumb, right? If I said for the next two months, be happy, that, that would be a failure for all of us. My challenge for the next two months is to do what Paul says. He says two things. He says, number one, he says, lay aside malice, anger, envy, bitterness, pride, and unhealthy comparisons. He actually does say that. He doesn't use those words, but that's what he says. He says, lay those things aside, those joy robbers. Make a deliberate choice to leave them behind. Don't nurse them. Don't nurture them. Mourn with people who mourn. Be happy that people mourn with you as you mourn, but also make a choice to leave them behind. But he doesn't stop there because just leaving something behind can leave you aimless. And he goes on to say this instead, as you drop those things, embrace with two arms everything which is noble and beautiful and good and trustworthy and laudable. 
That's, that's our challenge for the next two months. Can we lay those things aside and not nurse them and not nurture them and make an attempt to grab with gusto with both hands to wrap our arms around, to hug and to embrace the fact that it is not naive or optimistic or wishful thinking to remember that the good news is good news. It is no wonder that the world is not impressed by our evangelism because so many of us who go out to tell people the most amazing thing has happened. The God of the universe has come to live with us and die for us so that we can walk the kingdom with him, be loved by him and beloved by him for all of eternity. We tell them that and then we don't live like it's true. Well, I wouldn't believe you either. If you came to me and said, I have a million dollars in my account and I know how you can have a million dollars with no effort, and I've had people say almost that to me, my first instinct is to look at them and see, are they enjoying their million dollars? And if they're not, then I'm not inclined to believe them. <laughs> let's lay those things aside because we can. And let's embrace wholeheartedly these other things because we can. So we're going to focus, we're going to have parties, we're going to have food, we're going to have movies, we're going to have fellowship, we're going to have worship, we're going to just do everything we can to help you, to give you opportunities. Your groups are going to do it in your groups, they're going to find ways to focus you on these things. We're going to have these Sunday night events. Those of you who don't come to Sunday nights, I want to challenge you, if you're going to pick a time, make it these next two months. Come and just revel without guilt. It's okay to pretend everything will be okay. Because you know what? It will be. It will be. So that's what we want to do. And that's what we're going to do for the next two months. Leading all the way up to January. And after that, we'll all go back to being gloomy gusses. No, I hope that is not what happens. And I'm not saying you guys are gloomy gusses, really. But I do think we're just not as practiced. There's so much that says that anger is more realistic, and cynicism is more realistic, and sorrow is more realistic. I even read an article, this is actually part of what prompted me to think about this, about tox toxic positivity. And I get the idea that you don't want to, even scripture talks about not walking up to someone who's mourning and just pretending, you know, blasting them with good smiles or whatever. But I read this article, article about toxic positivity and it gave us nothing. This article simply said, just don't be so cotton-picking happy. And I thought, that can't be where we need to be. <laughs> that, can't, that can't be what's supposed to happen next. So that's where we're going. That's what the season's about. We'll take a pause on the 12 because Judas is a downer. And that's not what we're doing for the next two months. <laughs> and we're going to have a great time. Keep your eyes peeled for the newsletter, which will give you a calendar. We've already got everything scheduled out for the next two months. Most churches believe in the value of small groups, but at Focus Church, we are so convinced that's where the discipleship happens that we put all of our resources, our training, and our assessment into the Focus Groups. And we believe that you can be part of a Focus Group from anywhere in the country. So if you'd like to join us, just email me at pastormac, M-A-C, underscore at mac.com, and I'd love to tell you how you can be part of it. Either way, I hope this has been encouragement to you, and we'll see you here again next week.